listening to a Kink in the Chain podcast. Hello and welcome to Kink in the Chain podcast. I am your host, Ritzia. And I'm here with my special guest and now co-star, Alpine Lynx. Yay! Congratulations. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, very excited to, to join the podcast. Perfect. So as none of you know, my lovely co-host, we are going to be interviewing them today. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Oh boy. Okay, so my name is Alpine. It's not my real name, but that's what y'all get to call me. Um, I have been in the kink community for about four years now. I mainly identify as a masochist. Um, I'm non-binary and I use they, them pronouns. So what types of kinks do you prefer? Ooh, um, the painful ones. So, you know, impact, you know, (laughs) impact, knife play, blood play, kitten play, actually. I like kitten play. Um, that kind of stuff. And how long have you been in the kink scene? Four years-ish. Publicly or privately? Mostly publicly. Um, just with the local community, except for COVID. What made you decide into actually becoming a kinkster? Um, I kind of always suspected I was a masochist, just kind of like, you get those weird feelings as a teenager and as a kid when you see someone get tied up on TV or something like that. Um, and so when I was old enough, I decided to explore it for myself. Uh, so I ended up at our local dungeon, and things just kind of grew from there. So from the first time you were in the dungeon, did it freak you out? Were you scared? Were you excited? What were your feelings? Oh, I was very anxious. I was nervous. I didn't know how to talk to people. Um, I went first to a TNG night, which most uh, local dungeons will hold those for people of the younger ages, like under 35 or so. Um, And there was a bunch of new people there with me. Uh, And that night, I think I mostly just watched, uh, watched people interact and negotiate and talk to people didn't play that night, but it was a nice way to kind of step my toe in. And how many nights was it before you actually actually seen? Oh, like, it took a good six months, probably, of going and watching and getting to know people, making those connections before I actually seen. Wow. Mine was, like, the first night my partner took me, and then I was seeing and already naked on the table the first night. My partner is also, the partner I'm talking about is also my producer of the show. And you all know him. Yeah, I was I was pretty slow to get into it just because, I don't know, I'm not very social normally. So it took me a while to get comfortable enough to actually like approach people. And how did you figure out which kinks you actually were liking? Did you experiment or did you just like, boom, I know what I want? Yeah, I experimented a lot. Like, when I went in first into the kink community, I had a suspicion that I was a masochist, but I didn't know for sure. I'd never been put into large amounts of pain on purpose. Um, so it was it was a lot of experimenting, trying different things with different people, 
our local dungeon hold held a tasting night, which those are really cool because you get to try a whole bunch of different things. Uh, and from there, I kind of started to figure out what I liked. So do you, have you inherited or bought any toys or added anything to a collection? Or do you just let people use their stuff? Um, so I do have some stuff of my own. Mostly I let other people <laughs> use their things um, because I like playing with sadists. And sadists usually come very well equipped <laughs> to be sadists. Uh, but I was gifted a very nice pair of cuffs. Um, I have a couple of floggers and, you know, a couple other thwacky things. Have you also played out in, like, outdoors? Or do you just do mainly dungeon stuff? So I've played outside some, like, during the summer. That was a lot of fun. Um, you have to find somewhere where people aren't going to accidentally walk in on you or just come across you. Um, and then mostly in the dungeon, I have played in my house and in other people's houses, but there has to be like a very high degree of trust for that to happen. And how does a kingster develop trust? I think the best way to develop trust is to play with your partner. Um, negotiate well. And if your partner listens to your limits and makes sure you're comfortable and that everyone's needs are being met, over time, I think that develops into trust. Yeah. It's also not a bad idea to get references from other people in the community. Yeah, I have trust issues, so I, yeah. I don't bottom for very many. And it's usually people I've had conversations with and converse, more conversations and had lunch with. I you have to buy me a meal first before I'll play with you. Yeah. Before I'll bottom for you kind of attitude. And, like, one of the reasons I like playing first with people in the dungeon is it's monitored. There's DMs there. If you read and your top doesn't respect that, someone's going to come and make sure they respect that. Um such so more of a safety thing for me. Do you follow the regular red, yellow, green colors? What, are, what, what safety things do you like to have as a, yeah. here's my limit? Um, I do follow red, yellow, green. I think it's really easy and simple. It's a nice way to check in during a scene. Um, especially when I get really into a scene, I'm so far in the subspace, I can't articulate very well. So I'm not going to remember some complicated safe word or anything like that. Red, yellow, green is kind of already ingrained into our brains as, you know, stop, go, slow down. So I like sticking with that. So for example, like me, when I get way into the space and I no longer remember red, 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 red yellow, green, is there like a manic button that you can push like I need out or is red just your only color? Like your only last option kind of thing. Um, I've never been so deep into a space where I forget red, yellow, green. So I haven't had to figure something out for myself about that yet. So I know a lot of people like aftercare. Some people don't. Um, what are your favorite types of aftercare you like? Um, I really like laying with your scene partner and cuddling, um, being wrapped in soft, fuzzy blankets being given food. Some people like chocolate. I prefer something a little more substantial, um, like nuts or like cheese cubes, something snacky uh, to get kind of my energy back up. Um, and then just kind of talking about the scene with them, what went well, what could go better, how they're doing, uh, and then lots of words of affirmation. <laughs> so during COVID, 
Um, I know there's a lot of like restrictions and a lot of clubs closing. So what have you done to fill your kink needs during the COVID situation? Um, I mean, I have one or two people I trust enough and have been kind of in a friend bubble group with that I've been playing with. And that's helped a lot. Uh, it's, I have not really found any new partners during a pandemic, which, you know, kind of sucks, but I've been sustaining myself. <laughs> um, it's definitely hard to go more than a couple of months without a scene, though. And talking about scenes, so everybody has, like, one favorite toy. What is your one favorite toy, like, that you will, you know, drop to your knees for? Mm. I don't know. I like a lot of, ooh, knives. Knives. It's knives. I will start literally salivating over knives. So you also like blood plate, correct? Yeah. With the knives idea, okay. So with knives, um, what safety precautions do you do with your players when you're doing knife work? Um, so the player has to be experienced in knife play. Um, I prefer to have seen them play with someone else beforehand. Um, and then we talk about, like, how far do you want to go? Are you okay getting cut or nicked? Are you not? Um, and, you know, there's certain parts of the body you're more careful with than others. And it's just about kind of having a top who knows what they're doing with the knife and is in control of that. And as a blood player, do you ever worry about, like, STDs, transfers, and things like that? Yes, I'm very careful with blood play. Uh, before any kind of blood play scene, you know, there needs to be recent testing done for both parties, that kind of thing, any kind of disclosure, like, hey, I may have herpes, I don't know for sure, because I know that's harder to test for. Um, and then it needs to be like a very sanitary environment, um, sterile environment, like the knife needs to be clean, hands need to be clean. Because um, we're trying to avoid infection and any kind of undue harm. Do you prefer your player to wear gloves then? or? Um, uh, if that makes them more comfortable, I'm okay with just like clean hands. I was trying to figure out what the difference is between a gloved hand and like a naked hand. Would you feel different like when it touches your skin? Like how does it how does it feel as the bottom? Um, I prefer ungloved hands because the vinyl of gloves does feel different than just skin. Um, you know, it's kind of rubbery instead of soft. So, and I don't have a huge rubber kink. So, yeah. So, have you gone into like needles too? Or is it just mainly blades? I have tried needles. It's not my favorite. Something about the difference between slicing and puncturing. <laughs> really freaks me out a little bit or it's something just being in your skin for more than a few seconds so yeah i've tried needles a few times and have gotten nauseous every single time i have so it's not super duper for me so i really like decorative cutting like i have a design on my back of decorative cutting that was done for me what do you think about that because it does leave a scar and stuff I do really like decorative cutting. I think it has to be done with a lot of intention um, and with someone you very much trust because it is going to leave a scar and I know my body, scars take forever to, to heal and to fade, so I want it to be something I'm okay having on my skin for possibly forever. What is the craziest kink fantasy you're willing to share with our audience? Yeah, mine has to do with a puppy costume and a squirrel costume having a wrestling match. Oh, And yeah. then tying each other up. So that is my kinky, my, my one fantasy right now. Um, fully being kidnapped 
blindfolded, you don't know where you are, where you're going, um, and being just like held and tortured for a couple of days straight. <laughs> like, I don't know how well I would do with that, but it's definitely always the one that's been in the back of my mind. Is there a kink that you'll absolutely say red completely, not even try it, not do anything with it? I mean, yeah, like scat or piss play. I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> I know for sure I'm definitely not like adult diaper lover, adult baby diaper lover. Mm -hmm. Definitely not into that. Um, I have entered little space before, but my little is like 10 years old. That's a good age. Yeah. You still have all the funs and games. So what about costumes? Like, do you have specific outfits for play, or do you just normal clothes kind of person? Um, I have, like, I mean, I dress up a little bit for play. I don't have any, like, specific costumes. I kind of want some. I think that would be fun. That's just more been, like, a resources dealio or lack thereof. You th like wanting to make one or like have one purchased already made? Um, like either having the skills to make a nice one or purchasing a good one. Uh, because the kind of things I definitely want would be custom made and you want to pay an artist fairly for their work. Yeah. Oh, for the costumes I want, I'm either like, I can make this, it shouldn't be no problem. And then I'm like, but this professional did such a great job and I see this ad and I'm like, yes, th that's what I want. So why would I put myself in trouble when someone's already done it? I'm going to give them my money. Here, take my money. Go with it. <laughs> so, All right. So since I have you here today, <laughs> I take it you got the homework? Yes, I did. All right. So today we're going to be reviewing this article printed in the Independent. Common BDSM myths. It's not a new fad. It's not violent. And not everyone who partakes is psychologically maladjusted. Okay. BDSM first gained mainstream momentum in the 1940s. And this article is by Deborah So. S-O-H. All right. So the first one, it's a rare phenomena. That's the myth. According to the article, 37% of people in the UK have engaged in some form of bondage. Yeah, I don't think it's rare at all. Um... Like, even in very mainstream romance, you'll get hints of, like, power play and fun stuff like that. Well, I know a lot of people hide it, too. They're, like, yeah. at home, locked doors, because it's, like, this is my private life. I know it's kinky, but still my private life. I'm not going to tell you it's private. So I actually think the percentage is a lot higher. These are just 37% of people publicly announced this. Not, like, you know, closet people who are like, no, no, yeah. I don't do any of that. So that's what I'm thinking is, like, the number's actually higher than what it really is. I think it probably is. Uh, I don't know if there's any been, ever been, like, a comprehensive study done on kinksters in the U.S. I'd have to look that up. Right. That's something I haven't looked up either. I haven't done a whole lot of research on that. Number two is a new fad. <laughs> it's definitely not new. So BDSM gained its mainstream in 1940, uh, popularized with pinup girls and fetish magazines. I actually love taking photographs of pinup girls still. Like the poses they were and everything. Like those are the kind of fetishes I liked. And the the positions they put in the girls are still used today. Like a lot of girls like to do these pinup pieces that you would see. And then you also see like the gay leather community. And they've been around for decades. Uh, yes. BDSM 
honestly has a lot of history to it, and there's a lot to learn, I think. And it was mainstreamed in the 1940s. Which is pretty cool. So that's mainstream. So how far back are you guessing this has gone? Pretty far back. I think as long as people have been having sex. (laughs) Maybe, I don't, I can't speak for like archaic humans, but. Well, okay, because they always say like the caveman would bump their girl on the head and drag her away by her hair to claim him as their wife. Haven't you heard those stories about the caveman doing that? Yeah. Isn't that a type of kink? I don't know if this is, I mean, it's a type of kink. I don't know if this is an actual fact or just one of those myths. Yeah, that could be a myth. <laughs> Honestly, it could be a real myth. Yeah, because um, we don't know for sure unless you were back then seeing these cavemen do it. Well, everything is mainly guesses. So, And then you see a lot of, like, I don't know, there's a whole genre of literature based around BDSM and, like, the Elizabethan era. Oh, and their paintings? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think this is new. I think it being outside of the bedroom is slightly new comparatively, you know, less than 100 years. Number three. (laughs) It is defined by sadist and masochist acts. No. Um, BDSM community is very big, and one portion of that community is sadism and masochism but it's not what defines bdsm at all you can have a bdsm relationship and have not and not have any kind of pain involved you know it's more about the dynamics between the partners and well yeah because i've seen people like be servers yeah like uh, butlers and things like that and they would serve their mistress they wouldn't be beaten or anything they're they're doing it to pleasure to serve nobody's getting physically hurt or anything you know it's popular because i think it's the most shocking part of the bdsm community is like oh my god those people like getting beat up <laughs> i think the biggest shocker is the giant flames that i put on people's bodies and they yeah, go, that's, a, that's a fun one yeah it is um and it's the one that's always like like books like 50 shades of gray and those ones that get really popular it's all about the sadism when really there's a lot more to it so number four is the dominant partner is the one in control. No, they're not. Not <laughs> even. Sorry. I know a lot of submissives at top from the bottom, and they're like, yeah, I I get whatever I want kind of attitude. I've seen a lot of submissives like that. I was like, just because you're a dominant doesn't mean you're the one in control sometimes. Yeah. And, like, a submissive holds a lot of power in a scene. They have the power to end a scene. Um, to change it. To change a scene. Especially if you say to, yellow. To, you know be given consideration and have a scene well planned out. I think, like, there is an exchange of power, but no one side of the slash is without power. Right. I always think about, like, if you're submissive, like, what would you do for me? That's the question I asked them. I was like, if I do these things for you, what do you do for me? It's that Mm -hmm. exchange of power, like, or the exchange of rewards, like, you do something for me, I do something for you kind of thing. But if you're not doing anything for me, then it's one-sided and like, yeah. the power exchange is not as good and strong. Even though they, so it says in the article, even though a dominant would appear to be the one running the show, it's usually the, actually doms that perform to please their subs. The bossy bottom. I don't think I've heard that nickname. A bossy bottom? I've heard 
you know, topping from the bottom. Or brat. Or brat. I hear brat thrown a lot around for this term. Like brat is a very big in my in our community that I play in. So number five says partners are either dominant or submissive. It's like you don't have a choice there. No. I think like dominance and submission, like a lot of things exist on a spectrum. Like you can be submissive but also like to top sometimes for certain things or you can be dominant but also like to bottom for certain things or you can just be a switch you like doing both a lot i was trying to think about my puppy play for example like so i like to do puppy play and there's really not i don't have an owner so there's not a whole lot of topping going on but i'm not really submitting to anybody either and i'm not so i'm not switching i'm not sub dom or switch I'm like in a different category and I'm just like, so sometimes you're in categories that don't even align with those three. So in the article, it talks about how switches usually will dominate or submit due to their mood. So do you have a specific mood that you like to, like, does things change your mood or do you just like, I'm always in this headspace? I mean, there's things that put me in a submissive headspace. You know, things my partner in the scene can do to help me feel more submissive, that kind of stuff. There's certain types of play where I feel more toppy, like like puppy play. I love playing with the puppies. <laughs> They're great, aren't they? Yeah. They're super fun. Or um, being mean to them as a cat. Oh, yeah. I've, yeah. I've seen those fights. Um, but I think, I, I don't think it's binary. How about you? Well, mine all have to do with trust. Yeah. So if I trust the person, I'm more likely to bottom for them. If I don't trust the person, I will never bottom for them kind of attitude. So mine has a new, like, different view and level going there because of my trust issues that I have for being a bottom. And I understand what that is. But then I, like, have complete subspace when I'm in puppy form. Like, when I'm (laughs) running around as a little puppy, I have, like, fuzziness and it feels great. And then afterwards, I'm like, ah, floaty. (laughs) So, like, there's certain types of play, and it matters on the person, too, I know. So, sometimes I'm a service top, even, where I'm serving the bottom to pleasure them a lot of the times, or I'm serving whoever is running the show kind of thing. Like, if, for some if I'm doing, like, a taste, because there's a lot of people going on, I'm serving the club as a member to give all of these newbies a taste of what I do in the world. Number six. A person who is dominant or submissive in real life will prefer a similar role in BDSM. Okay, so I do, but I know that's not true for everybody. Yeah. Like, I have a dominant, very dominant job, but my personality and my play space, I'm very dominant as a player, too. So I'm like, well, mine doesn't switch. Mine's the same. But I've known, like, attorneys and lawyers who are, like, in the dominant position Mm -hmm. will submit two yeah. ladies in the other half so and like i'm definitely very submissive but that doesn't always bleed into real life for me like there's times where i have to be assertive and a leader and like i can turn it on and off i understand that some people can't though right yeah i've seen that and so i don't think it's fair to apply the statement to everybody in the community because it's not true for everyone in the community no but it is true for some people yeah I'm just trying to read this article real quick. It says, as a sex researcher, I cannot count the number of men I've interviewed who identify as a type A alpha male 
at work and their relationships, yet love to walk around on leashes. <laughs> so I've seen like doctors and lawyers doing that. So I've noticed that people with like those really heavy jobs that have a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. and a lot that's taken out of them like to submit because it gives them that clear headspace. It likes to like free them of all responsibilities, like give somebody else control for a while because I don't have to. I don't and I'll still feel safe because they have that dynamic with the other partners. Yeah, definitely. Number seven, BDSM is all about whips and chains. <laughs> no, I mean, as fun as whips and chains are, there's so much more to, to BDSM. Are you sure about that? I mean, pretty sure. Because I've seen a lot of whips and chains. I mean, I really like the whips and chains, but I've also seen, you know, really soft toys and feathers and wrestling. I mean, I beat somebody with a paper towel roll. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Like, I, I get really creative with my toys. Yeah. It doesn't have to be something I bought or something I've made either. It's just some random object I find. Like, I will go over to my partner's bag because he has these squeaking chickens. Oh, yeah. The rubber chickens. And I have beaten people with rubber chickens before. The rubber chickens are deceptive. <laughs> but they make such amazing noises. They, they look like they'd be cute and fun, but they hurt like a bitch. <laughs> but they make such great noises when you hit people with them. It is them. really funny. Uh, so, like, and of course you do knife play, so that would be something that's yeah. outside of. And then the you have, like, I also do tickle play, and there's no whips and chains and tickle play. It's all, like, feathers and fingers and fuzzy things. And then, you know, you have the littles, and they like their stuffies and soft blankets. Have you ever noticed, like, media? Why does the media always use whips and chains then? It's a good visual. It's scary. <laughs> Whips and chains, you're going to put that up in a graphic and it's going to be like, ooh, spooky. Because yeah, if you see those dominatrix ones, like if a dominatrix walks in in a movie or a show, she always has a whip with her. And always like it's a just... really well-made latex suit or leather. And like, yes, yeah, some people are like that, but a lot of us aren't. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anybody... No, I think I have seen a couple at conventions yeah. where they come in and they're like, badass, whip, ah, look at and me. Like, especially for professional dominatrix, it's their job to look intimidating. People pay them for that. I just look intimidating by just walking into a room no matter what I'm wearing. But I think in media, definitely, they don't really portray a lot of the other sides of BDSM. Uh, probably because... The whips and chains side is is the one that's going to get you the most shock value and the most clicks. BDSM is spontaneous and violent. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been in... No. <laughs> it's a myth. It is a myth. And some scenes are violent and some scenes are spontaneous. Like... Sometimes when I go to a club, I'm not prepared to play. Like, I don't have, like, this plan of playing with mm-hmm. these multiple people. And I walk in the door and, like, hey, you want to play? Sure. And then, bam, there's a scene. Very spontaneous. Yeah, but that even that would include, like, a planning period. You know, sitting down for a few minutes and being like, here's, yeah, you negotiate the scene a little bit. A little bit. But then the random toys I grab can yeah. be completely random. Like the, to- but, like the paper roll thing that I was talking about earlier. That was a spontaneous thing. It was on the shelf. I grabbed it. 
And I started beating him with it. But I definitely don't see, like, people just come up to random people in the in the club and grab them by the hair and be like, you're getting beaten now. No, they usually know the person. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's going to be, there's going to be some communication almost all of the time. Um, maybe if you're in, like, a really well-set-up dynamic, there can be some spontaneousness. Uh, but that comes with trust and time. But also, some scenes are violent intentionally, but even... I think impact scenes where people are beating on you. There's a difference between violence and beating someone. <laughs> like violence is going to do a lot more psychological harm. So when we say violence, you mean like anger? Yeah, like there's anger, there's bad intent, things like that behind it. That's not BDSM. People beat other people because it makes both parties happy. It they get something positive out of it. You know, I can take a whole bunch of spankings from people I trust, but if someone tries to slap me on the ass, I don't know. That makes me super uncomfortable. So in the article, it does talk about negotiations and mm. trust are two of the biggest things. So Yeah. Nobody's going to come up to you and immediately be like, get on your knees. We're going to do this thing. <laughs> Number nine, it always involves some form of sexual contact. So that is not necessary for kink at all. Um, there's lots of people who play and it's not sexual at all. For some people it is, but it's not necessary. So I've been playing in the scene for about 10 years now. And I played with over a thousand people. And I think I've only slept with a few because they were my partners. I only have sex with my partners. Mm-hmm. I enjoy forced orgasm scenes and, and doing forced orgasm stuff on other people. So sexual content. Yeah, I do those kind of scenes once in a while. But most of my scenes are non... Like, they might turn yeah. turn each other on. But it's not like... Like, there's not explicit sex going on. Right. Um, and that's definitely been how it is for me. Like, I'm asexual. I don't experience sexual attraction towards other people, but I really like getting beaten by them. Um, and it's, it's its own pain for me. as its own kind of gratification. I have made a lot of people make sexual noises. Like, when I do a type of play that they absolutely love, such like fire cupping massages, mm-hmm. I get some moans and sexual noises come out of people but doesn't mean I'm actually doing anything sexual to them. Yeah, it might be, like, more sensual than sexual, because I've definitely done that. I'm just reading the article now. It says, for example, one man I spoke to enjoyed being humiliated and being whipped by his partner and told repeatedly that he has a small penis. (laughs) Sex for him did not involve any physical contact from her. Gratification would arrive in the form of going home after the scene ended and masturbating while replaying the events in his mind. I mean, that's how some people like to do it. Some people don't feel the need to masturbate afterwards. It just really depends on you. Yeah, some people like the adrenaline rush. Some people like just the sensation and feeling super good. Mm -hmm. Or do it for the chemical cascade. Tops like to see their little ones run around like crazy. (laughs) And then also just, like, for the joy of having this intense connection with somebody else for a while. It's fun. Number 10. BDSM community revolves only around sex. Not at all. That's very much more swingers. Swingers is a whole nother bag of interesting it's conversation. It's a whole thing. 
But um, no, a lot of a lot of the BDSM community is just that. It's a community. People talk to each other, like hanging out with each other, like being nerds together and figuring out interesting ways to do scenes. And so, in the article, it mentions munches. Do you like going to munches? I did pre-COVID. Uh, I thought they were fun. You know, you meet people with similar interests. It's easy to talk to people. It's just fun. It's like um, you just find your group of people. Right. I also do rope classes. They mentioned a little bit about rope stuff in the article, and I was like, I do rope classes, and that's not sexual. That's more like I'm learning to tie you up safely yeah. so I don't hurt you when I throw you up in the air upside down. And so. I think that brings up a good point that a lot of the community is about education. We like to do things that are more risky, and so I think the community tries to do a good job at making sure new people are educated about these things. It also matters on who your partner is, because yeah. I know some people will end their scenes in sex every time. No matter what the scene was, it ends in sex every single time. Yeah. And I mean, then other people, it's like, you're seen, you're done, let's go cuddle, or let's have some food, you know, or they'll split separate ways and go do something else with their lives. Yeah. I mean, it's so varied, and I think it's a lot of fun. Number 11, BDSM involves the use of fancy tools and expensive equipment. Not necessarily. <laughs> nope. Um, I mean, I've been beaten with wooden spoons, kitchen spatulas. Which you can find at the dollar store for a dollar. Yeah. it's You can find really cheap stuff. Dowel rods, um, paint sticks. Glow sticks. I sometimes will go shopping with a person I'm going to top. And mm-hmm. we go to the dollar store. And I tell them to pick out 10 things. And I'll pick out 10 things. And we'll use all 20 things in a scene. I've also done MacGyver competitions where the person running the MacGyver competition will go to the dollar store, buy a hundred different things and throw them in bags and hand you them and be like, here, do a scene with these 10 things. And I've seen some like crazy creative scenes come out of that kind of competition. It's always fun to watch. Yeah. But you can find anything around your house. Um, Some things you don't want to use. Like I've heard someone, one of my friends got tied up by cord on a vacuum cleaner oh so you have to be careful what yeah. your choices are i know that it was available at the moment and it was something that they had mm-hmm. but the it cut into her wrist and left some really bad bruising and cuts in yeah. her wrist so it almost looked like she was cutting her wrist even though it was just a vacuum cord but yeah you gotta be careful on what you choose in your home as well And then there's some things that you don't even need equipment. I mean, it can be nice to have the equipment, but for, say, puppy play, it's fun to have the mask and the tail, and it can help you get into the headspace, but sometimes you can get to it without the equipment. Yeah, I usually wear, like, some leggings and Mm -hmm. some socks, and I'm good because I know (laughs) the carpets I crawl around, I'll rip my toes open, so. Like, it's very accessible. You don't necessarily need the very expensive equipment. You can collect that and that can be a lot of fun but you can also have very good scenes without it so like you do tickle play you were suggesting yeah that's something you don't need toys for correct you don't uh you can include toys but i find uh fingers are honestly the most effective tools for tickle play so you like knife play as well so what about knives on a budget is there any alternatives to like those fancy knives i always see knife players use? yeah so if your knife play is more psychological in nature and you're just trying to kind of freak the sub out maybe a bit 
I've heard of people putting credit cards in the freezer and just kind of running it along someone's back and the cold makes it feel sharp even though it's not really hurting you. Or just kind of using the, you know, the dull side of butter knives just for the kind of the metal feel. But also like you can get cheap knives, just make sure they're sharp and easy and well controlled. Because um, cuts with dull knives, not fun. What about hardware? hardware? Like things you would find in the garage. I mean, yeah, kinksters are very creative people. <laughs> but do you have to be creative to be a kinkster? You don't. You can be creative, but you don't have to be. You can just buy everything. Yeah. I've heard people buying everything. They buy a lot of things. And you can go that way, too. And that's fun. But if you can't, you're also good to go. Some of the things listed in this are, like, plastic curtain rods for caning, wooden Mm. spoons or or cooking utensils, clothespins. Yeah, you can have a lot of fun with clothespins pins and some string. Yep, so that's like kink on a budget. People who take part in BDSM are psychologically maladjusted. I don't think so. Uh, There has been instances of people using BDSM and kink to, you know, work through trauma or other things, but some people just do it because it's fun. So it says here, In fact, they've been shown to score higher than vanilla folk on several positive psychological characteristics, including subjective well-being. What does that mean to you? I mean, it means to me that kinksters aren't crazy people or serial killers or, you know, the very media-publicized idea of a sadist, which, you know, there are psychos out there, but usually not they're, they're usually not kinksters. Yeah, you got to be careful of the psychos, guys. Be yeah. sure that you learn who you're playing with. Yeah. Um, Talk to them. Communication. Definitely communication. I think a lot of us are, like, we're very well adjusted. Kink involves a lot of communication, a lot of trust. So you end up developing those skills, which are useful in all aspects of life. Also, it makes you happy. <laughs> So, you know, we got that. Do what makes you happy. Number 13, you can tell if someone is part of the lifestyle based on what they look like. No. I mean, I wear flowery button-up shirts and leggings. Or I don't think if anyone looked at me just at work, they would think I was kinky. So am I saying that all the bikers I meet, because they all wear leather? Yeah. Like, leather is more than just kinksters. It's very much kinksters, but there's bikers and, you know, bikers, cowboys. You see leather in other aspects. Punk. Um, I've noticed that, like, collars have become more of a fashion statement than necessary, necessarily a signifier that you're in a kink relationship. So is, like, the leather, because you see a lot of leather yeah. and a lot of people, too. Um, cuffs. I've noticed cuffs, like a lot of skateboarders and absolutely um, gang members wear cuffs because it looks cool. I mean, it does look cool. Yeah, it does. I have my leather cuff, but I only wear the one. Hmm. I I wear a variety of different things. Even when I'm doing kink, I wear a variety of different things. Mm-hmm. You really can't tell my streetwear from my kinkwear because a lot of it looks so similar. Unless I am physically dressing up like an animal. 
or I'm physically dressing up in my leathers. It's like everything else looks the same from my work to now because I have to have professional dress and I usually dress up mm-hmm. when I go to the club because as a dominant personality, I like looking pretty and having yeah. a very nice look to me to top people. So And like I typically put a little bit more effort into how I look when I go to the club or I'm going to be out with other people. I want to look cute, but it isn't always necessarily kinky. It's just cute. For anybody who's been listening once before, you all know and love to hear Rope Squirrel's voice. Yes, but he is our producer now. Uh, so we are trying to make more for you to listen to, more of our beautiful voices. Rope Squirrel will come back once in a while to participate, but he's mainly our producer now. And so uh, me and Lynx here, so Ritzy uh, and Lynx are, oh wait, not Lynx, right? Lynx is fine. Okay, because I like Lynx. Lynx is pretty cute, actually. Yeah. I'm down I'm down with Lynx. <laughs> okay. Ritzy and Lynx here are going to be your host for a while. So I hopefully everybody enjoys themselves. And remember, and as always, stay kinky, my friends. Check us out on the web at kinkinthechain.com. Follow us on Twitter at KinkChainShow. We don't bite unless you ask nice. Have feedback or want to submit a question for a future show? Send your emails to podcast at kinkinthechain.com.